welcome to the Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubbs. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcast. This is episode number 39, and today we're taking a deep dive into brain health, cognitive decline, and Alzheimer's disease with nutrition expert and author of the incredible book, The Alzheimer's Antidote, Amy Berger. Amy has a master's degree in nutrition and does a phenomenal job of really taking a complex topic like cognitive decline and Alzheimer's and making it digestible and easy to understand. In this episode, she discusses how Alzheimer's disease is really an energy crisis in the brain, how brain cells are effectively starving for fuel and struggling to metabolize glucose effectively, and the role of low-carb and ketogenic diets play in providing the brain with an alternative and potentially effective fuel source. She also takes a deep dive into the physiology of Alzheimer's disease, talking beta-amyloid plaques, neurofibrillary tangles, and the critical role of cholesterol, as well as key nutrients like choline and vitamin B12 in brain health. Amy does a tremendous job unpacking this really complex topic. Her book, The Alzheimer's Antidote, is fantastic and really insightful, so If you're a doctor out there seeing patients, don't miss this interview. If you're a nutritionist or trainer, you likely have some clients in the early phases of cognitive decline. And Amy touches on some great, not only dietary, but exercise and sleep recommendations as well. And of course, if you simply want to support friends and family members or loved ones, Amy really sums things up quite nicely with her quote, there is something you can do. As usual, check out my layups and performance hacks at drbubs.com. And just a quick note to say, a big, big thank you to everyone for all the great feedback and insightful questions. I do read them all, so please keep them coming on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Dr. Bubs. You can use the hashtag DrBubsPP and share with friends. I really appreciate all those comments and support, so please do keep them coming. Thanks, and enjoy this episode. I am joined today by Amy Berger, who holds a master's degree in human nutrition and is a certified nutrition specialist and nutritional therapy practitioner. She's a U.S. Air Force veteran and spent years doing what nutrition and health experts claimed were the right things to do to lose weight and maintain optimal health, but failed to experience these, these results. Having learned lessons the hard way, she has dedicated her career to showing others that vibrant health does not require starvation, deprivation, or living in the gym. Amy, thanks so much for taking the time today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Listen, before we dive into talking about cognitive decline, Alzheimer's disease, and your fantastic new book, uh, The Alzheimer's Antidote, can you tell the listeners a little bit more about your journey into nutrition and health? Yeah, um, I started in this like so many other people do. I was not a professional nutritionist forever. Um, I, I had many other jobs doing, you know, other kinds of work, and I was overweight, and I was a chubby kid. And um, I remained chubby through my my teenage years and young adult years, even though I was doing a ton of exercise. I ran two marathons and I was eating at the time what I thought was a healthy diet, lots and lots of whole grain bread, you know, reduced fat margarine, you know, uh, lots of pasta to fuel my running, all that. And, um, you know, joke was on me, that weight never went anywhere. And um, I spent a very long time beating myself up and feeling like a failure, feeling like it was my fault. And, you know, after so many years of 
not understanding why it wasn't working and and years of watching people that I knew exercised much less than I did, ate much worse than I did, who looked better than me. You know, I I started to to try to figure out what's wrong here. Why isn't this adding up? And I stumbled upon the Atkins book, and that was my my first foray into low carb and it was so it started with with weight loss for me. You know, at the time, I was kind of lucky. I didn't have any health problems. I was just carrying a little bit extra weight. But I have a family history of type two diabetes, obesity, stroke. So I, I kind of, if I had continued eating that way, I probably would have ended up with one of those issues at some point. And um, after learning about this, after learning about how the body works and what these different kind of foods do to us and why we hang on to weight or get rid of weight, um, it occurred to me that I could make a living out of this. I, I wasn't really very satisfied or happy with all the other jobs I'd had. And I said, you know, I think I could actually do this for a living and help other people learn about low carb. So that's where I am now. But even though I started from the weight loss perspective, of course, over the years, my interest and, and my fascination with this way of eating is it's totally morphed because, you know, fat loss is such a small, small part of what this diet is capable of doing. 100%. And at what point did, for you, this kind of dovetail down that road towards, you know, cognitive decline, dementias, Alzheimer's, and really getting deep into that uh, topic? Sorry, what, what, what led me to it? Yeah, at what point did, what was that branching off point where, you know, researching and, and getting into the, the cognitive decline and dementia aspect really start to to ring true for you. Right. Yeah, it was it was kind of serendipity. I don't have a family history of Alzheimer's, but I read the book Good Calories, Bad Calories by Gary Taubes um, several years ago. And and in, in that book, he has a chapter where he talks about links between glucose, insulin and dementia. And it's the first place I ever heard of that. And it was really fascinating to me. And I, I didn't really look into it at the time I read the book. But about four years after I read that book is when I was in school for nutrition and I had to pick a thesis topic. And I said, you know, I'm going to go back to that Alzheimer's thing, that insulin and Alzheimer's thing and see if there's enough there for me to do some research on it. And when I started looking at it, I couldn't believe what I was finding. I mean, the research, the, the medical literature is loaded with articles calling Alzheimer's disease type 3 diabetes or uh, brain insulin resistance. And nobody was talking about this. You know, we're, we're led to believe that we have no clue what's going on in Alzheimer's. It's a total mystery. And that's just not true. I mean, we, we don't know everything. There's a lot of unanswered questions. But I think we know enough to start making some inroads in this. Terrific. And if we can actually, yeah. And I mean, I mean, my, my interest, my interest sparked, I mean, I started researching it for my thesis and it turned into the book I wrote because once I was out of school, I couldn't imagine keeping this to myself. I mean, I felt like this is literally potentially life-changing and life-saving information. And the people who need it at most, the loved ones and caregivers of people with dementia, they don't have time to read these, these, you know, scientific journals, or even if they do, are they going to be able to understand what they're reading? So I, I really wanted to write this book as, as the layman's translation of this really, really important, fascinating research. Yeah, it's incredible. You do such a great job of unpacking such a complex topic. Um, but how about, could we kick things off with really just uh, giving all the docs, nutritionists, trainers, everyone a baseline of, you know, what is Alzheimer's disease? What's going on in the background? And how prevalent is it today? 
Oh, um, I don't have the statistics in front of me, so I don't know the exact numbers, but certainly it is increasing in incidence. Um, Part of that is because people are aging. We have, you know, the baby boomer generation where we have many more millions of people reaching their, you know, older years now. So it's kind of to be expected that we're going to see an uptick in Alzheimer's incidence as the population ages. But we're not really talking about very elderly people anymore. You know, this used to be a, a dementia that really struck people in their 80s, people in their 90s, it was somebody's grandma, it was their great grandfather. Now we're talking about people in their 50s and 60s who are getting what they call early onset Alzheimer's. Um, They used to joke and call this old timers disease. And we're not really talking about old timers anymore. So something is definitely changing. And it's changed within the last couple of, of years, if not, you know, a couple of decades. So Alzheimer's is a type of dementia there there's many others that i think are caused by different reasons but it leads to it's it is progressive right now um it leads to sort of it it starts off kind of mild you know you just forget names forget dates um you start having word recall problems you know you, you look at an object on your desk and you just can't remember the word so you point to it and you say that that red thing over there um people that do a lot of math in their professions, find that they have trouble making calculations in their head as quickly as they used to. So it starts off mild, but it becomes increasingly worse. And it, it, it progresses really to the end stage where people are not even able to care for themselves. They don't recognize family members. Um, it really impacts quality of life, not only for the person afflicted, but obviously for their, their family and their, their loved ones. Absolutely. And, um, you know, one of the primary physical hallmarks of Alzheimer's disease is obviously the beta amyloid plaques. And, you know, these are often cited as a cause of Alzheimer's. Can you, can you clarify what they are and maybe shed some light on their, on their actual role in, in, in the Alzheimer's progression? Yeah, sure. And I mean, before I do that real quick, I'll just get down into one detail with Alzheimer's because I, I gave kind of a general description. When I said they call this type three diabetes now or diabetes of the brain, it it's because the primary problem going wrong in the Alzheimer's brain is that neurons in the affected areas have lost the ability to get energy from glucose. So Alzheimer's is really a metabolic problem, and it's not something that's localized to the brain. It's happening because of of wholesale changes throughout the body, and it's just affecting the brain the most. Um, so it's really, it's an energy crisis in the brain. These, these brain cells are essentially starving to death because they're not able to fuel themselves properly. So this beta amyloid is, it, it's supposed to be how they actually diagnose Alzheimer's because you can't detect it. You can measure it in the cerebrospinal fluid, but you can only see these amyloid plaques in someone's brain after they die and you do an autopsy and you look at their brain. So they've done some autopsies and they have seen that in people that die with a a presumed diagnosis of Alzheimer's, many of them don't have a lot of this amyloid plaque in their brain. And people who die for other reasons do have a lot of this plaque, but they did not have dementia. So either these plaques are not the cause of this problem or they're not the main cause. And every drug, and there have been multiple drugs, every pharmaceutical drug developed to reduce the formation of these proteins and plaques has been a failure. And I, I say they've been a failure in the sense that they have reduced the formation of these proteins and plaques, 
But reducing that has done nothing to stop the disease progression. It's almost, I, I compare them to the statin drugs. Statin drugs do lower people's cholesterol, but that doesn't protect them against heart attack and cardiovascular disease because cholesterol is not the problem in the same way that the beta amyloid is not the problem in the Alzheimer's brain. And it, it may even be a protective factor, which is why when we have these drugs that reduce it, some people actually do worse. They start to decline wow. faster. Yeah, so, um, I mean, these, these amyloid proteins, I, I, I talk, I, I compare them to a fever. A fever is a protective mechanism. When, when your body has a virus to fight off or some type of pathogen to fight off, you heat up your core temperature in an effort to kill those pathogens. And so that's a protective thing. But if the fever starts to go too high, then the fever itself is a problem. And it seems to be the same way with these amyloid proteins that when they are secreted in the brain, they're there for a protective reason. But when they're not cleared away properly, and they start to build up and accumulate and form into these solid plaques in the brain, that becomes a problem. And things like oxidative stress can be a big increaser of this beta amyloid formation, correct? I Yes, oxidative stress can... Um, can increase it. I mean, especially if it's, if it's being secreted as a protective mechanism, but I think, you know, high, high insulin levels also reduce the clearance of these amyloid proteins. Now, these proteins are secreted in everybody. They're a normal, you know, metabolic biochemical thing. What seems to be the problem in the Alzheimer's brain is that they're not cleared away properly. So they're left to accumulate and, and solidify into what we call these plaques. And these plaques kind of get in the way. They, they gunk up the spaces between the neurons. So it makes them harder to, it makes it harder to communicate from one neuron to the next. And, and the result of that is this breakdown in cognitive function. Um, but it's, the thing the thing that's supposed to clear away these proteins, oddly enough, is called insulin degrading enzyme. And it's the same enzyme that does exactly what that sounds like. It clears away insulin. So if your insulin levels are high all the time from your diet or from other different things that are going on in your body, um, that enzyme is going to be too busy dealing with all the insulin, thus leaving those amyloid proteins to accumulate and solidify in your brain. Yeah, it's shocking stuff when we think about, you know, about 50% of the population now, I think it is, right, that are classified as pre-diabetic or diabetic. And, of course, the weight gain and obesity levels are rising so dramatically. And, you know, you write about how you know, a predominant metabolic hallmark of Alzheimer's is this reduced rate for the brain to use glucose, which I was amazed could be up to 45% lower uh, in Alzheimer's patients. Um, and one of the things, being in medical schools, we're always taught that, you know, the brain requires a certain amount of glucose, you know, 120, 140 grams a day. Can you walk through how that's maybe an oversimplification of, of physiology? You know, what's going on with our brain? What fuels does it really need? Yeah, that's a great question. So the brain does require glucose. Um, the people listening probably know that if you switch over to, to a very low-carb diet or a ketogenic diet, there are other fuels that the brain can use. But even when the brain is receiving a lot of these other fuels, it still does need some glucose. The thing is, if we transition to some other way of eating where we're eating very, very little carbohydrate, very little glucose, in some cases, none. I mean, there's a couple of people now doing what we call a zero carb experiment where they're literally eating nothing but animal, you know, protein and fat. They're really getting 
little to no outside glucose, the brain still has to have a way to get that glucose. So when your body is being fueled primarily by something other than carbohydrate, you're going to produce a lot of ketones. And the ketones are an excellent fuel for the brain. And because those ketones are going to provide some percentage of fuel for the brain, first, the brain now requires less glucose. It doesn't require 120 grams. It requires something less than that. And the, the bigger point is that just because the brain requires a little bit of glucose doesn't mean we have to ingest a lot of carbohydrate to provide that glucose. I say in my book that uh, the human body is the ultimate reuse and recycle machine because we're very good at making things out of other things. And one of the things we can make out of a bunch of different other stuff is glucose. So, I mean, this is why if, if your brain requires a certain amount of glucose, how is it that people can survive a five-day water fast or a 10-day water fast? They don't die. That glucose is coming from somewhere. So that's... um. Yes, the brain the brain requires glucose, but that doesn't mean that we have a, a an obligation to eat bagels. Absolutely, and the amazing thing being that you know the brain ketone metabolism, which you cite in your book, you know, isn't impaired in Alzheimer's like the glucose, which seems um, incredible. Yeah, I mean that to me is is the million dollar piece right there because even though the brain has trouble using glucose in this condition, it still takes up and uses ketones now. Older people with very severe dementia do not take up and use the ketones as well as someone who's young and healthy, but they still do take them up and use them. And, and to me, you know, there's a lot of other things going on in this illness and contributing to this illness, but that is like the most important, most obvious place to start. If the biggest problem in this condition is that these brain cells are basically starving then we need to feed them. We need to nourish them and ketones will do that. And frankly, you know, I don't, I don't want to like sound harsh here or anything, but I don't know why this isn't already the standard of care. I, I don't know why this isn't the first thing when you receive an Alzheimer's diagnosis, the first thing should be go on a ketogenic diet and then we'll work out the details later. <laughs> you know, the first, the first order of business should be to, to nourish these starving neurons. hundred percent. I mean, they, those patients have to eat as well. So yeah, you might as well get them on a program that's going to really be fueling the brain. And of course, in your book, you, you shift over to the question around cholesterol and, you know, low fat diets being the prevalent dietary dogma over the last 40 or 50 years. And, you know, I was amazed to, you know, the human brain accounting for only 2% of the body weight, but holding on to 25% of the body's cholesterol. So what's going on with cholesterol for brain function? Oh, it's such a huge issue for the brain. Um, yeah, you said it, a, a full quarter of the of all the body's cholesterol is inside our brain that's how important cholesterol is for the the physical structure and the function of the brain um the the myelin that that coats and protects these neurons is is mostly built out of cholesterol all the cell membranes have you know a ton of cholesterol in them so they've they've been doing more and more studies lately you know and it's associational it's epidemiological we we can't prove cause and effect here but it seems to be that higher cholesterol is actually protective for cognitive function later in life. Um, people with a higher cholesterol um, have lower risk of dementia and cognitive decline. And um, it's statin drugs that, that lower cholesterol come with, I, I, I don't know that there are warnings, I don't think there are warnings on the side of the box at this point, but if you go on the, 
the Food and Drug Administration's website in the U.S. or uh, the Mayo Clinic's website, they very clearly list memory loss, confusion, fuzzy thinking as side effects of these drugs. And they even say that these side effects go away once the drug is no longer being taken. And that's great, except how many doctors tell their patients to stop taking the statin, even if they're complaining of memory loss and muscle pain and fatigue and all the other side effects that we know are directly tied to a deficiency of cholesterol. Yeah, it's definitely something that, uh, you know, in my practice, men age 40, 50, 60, you know, the statin prescriptions are so, so prevalent. And of course, you see them the muscular pain, you see the libido effects, and of course you see things around cognitive function, and of course more of them are getting, um, learning a bit more about this sort of connection, and so I think there's a bit more um, shift going on, which is which is tremendous, but it's amazing how they're sort of giving out like candies to anyone who does present with um, yeah, you know, abdominal adiposity, et cetera. Right, and it's it's terrifying because I, I don't think it's going too far to say that, that statin drugs have directly contributed to the exploding incidence of this disease. Now, you know, low cholesterol or insufficient cholesterol is obviously not the only contributing factor to Alzheimer's, but it's a big one. And and like you said, they're giving these out like candy. The, the second your total cholesterol is over 200, they want to give you a drug and they don't tell you that, you know, 10 years, 15 years down the line, you might end up with dementia because this doesn't happen overnight. You know, nobody wakes up. You don't take a statin and wake up a week later with Alzheimer's. It takes a very long time. So it's more difficult to connect that as cause and effect. Um, but I don't I, I don't know how anyone can look at the mechanisms of what statins do and look at the requirement for cholesterol in the brain and not think that that's a problem. I'm very well said. And of course, one of the things that oftentimes clients fall in these low cholesterol, low fat diets is uh, omitting egg yolks, of course, which are a tremendous source of choline. Can you discuss that relationship between the benefits of choline for the brain? Yeah, so we, um, we've been scared away from egg yolks and, and pretty much lots of other foods that have a lot of, of fat and cholesterol in them. Um, and egg yolks are, like you said, really probably the number one dietary source of something called choline. And um, choline is a molecule that's a building block for acetylcholine, which is a neurotransmitter. It's, it's a chemical that is very important for healthy uh, learning and, and memory. And it's, I mean, it's also involved in like motor neurons, like helping you move and controlling your, you know, your muscles. But for in terms of Alzheimer's, it's, it's more the the memory and learning and, and people with dementia do have lower levels of acetylcholine. Um, and so it's this, this whole thing really came from, from the cholesterol scare where we think if you eat too much cholesterol, you'll have high cholesterol and then you'll have a heart attack. And that entire, both of those premises are not accurate. You know, eating cholesterol it, for most people does very little to actually affect the levels of cholesterol in the blood. And then people that have cardiovascular disease or experience a heart attack run the gamut of every cholesterol level under the sun. They're high and they're low and they're in between. The total level of cholesterol, you cannot predict heart attack or heart disease. And so I think for, for Alzheimer's patients or anyone with any kind of cognitive issue, brain fog, memory problems, even in the early stages, egg yolks are one of the best things you can eat. And, and of course, our seniors and our elders um, are really the ones that that were steeped in the the cholesterol scare. You know, people people like you and me are kind of learning that 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 was wrong, and and 
some of the fats have been vindicated and given a free pass, things like salmon and avocado and walnuts, we call these the politically correct fats, but they've yet to exonerate things like lard and butter and beef tallow from grass-fed animals, which is, you know, those are the fats that, that people were eating for generations before any of these illnesses were a big thing. 100%. And I mean, as you mentioned there, for a lot of docs listening in, that low cholesterol number on a patient's uh, blood labs is almost that little red flag to start to wonder, hey, what's going on with their dietary intake? And maybe they are at increased risk, right? Yeah, I mean, low cholesterol is is probably far more dangerous than high cholesterol. You know, low cholesterol usually means something is going on in your body. You know, your body is is sucking up all that cholesterol because it needs it for repair or for or for some kind of problem that's going on. And so the blood levels are kind of low. Um, and, and other than, you know, if you're taking a statin, they're going to be low anyway. So it really when when you see someone with low cholesterol, I, I wouldn't pat them on the back and say, congratulations, I would say what's what's wrong here. Absolutely. And that dovetails into my next question here, which is, you know, another physical hallmark of Alzheimer's is these neurofibrillary tangles. Uh, can you describe to folks what's going on here and how they affect the neurons? Yeah, so neurons have kind of a funny shape. Um, they have, it's hard to describe. Sometimes I describe it as like if you if you extend your arm in front of you and make a fist, um, the fist, or, or don't make a fist, put, spread your fingers out. Your palm is the body of the cell. Your fingers are called dendrites. And your arm coming out is is an axon. And those are just different parts of a neuron. But in order for these neurons to work properly and for them to communicate with each other and, and brain function and cognition to happen the way it's supposed to, these neurons have to have that shape. They have to maintain that special shape. And if they don't, these cells are not going to work properly. And these neurofibrillary tangles are it's almost as if your your bones inside your arm or or whatever is holding that cell's shape in place, kind of like a scaffolding for the cell, if that scaffolding kind of crumbles and gets ruined and broken, then the, that cell kind of jumbles up and it doesn't have the right shape. And that that happens a lot in Alzheimer's. And I I think this is actually also tied to the insulin signaling because insulin affects uh, one of the proteins that keeps that cell shape. And so when insulin signaling is not properly happening in the brain, that that enzyme kind of goes to work and and I, I can't think of a better word than jumbles up. It, it just it, it destroys that that scaffolding. And so those cells kind of lose their structural integrity. And then, you know, the natural, the natural result of that is the kind of stuff that we see in Alzheimer's, which is like the breakdown of, of, of cognition, memory loss, behavioral problems, personality changes. Um, there's, there's a saying in biochemistry that um, structure determines function. So if, if the structure of something is not right, the function is not going to be right. And that's what happens with these brain cells. And something that's really important for keeping healthy neurons is uh, vitamin B12. And we often see low levels in uh, older populations. Can you uh, explain why? Yeah, B12 kind of is a, a passenger along for the ride in the fat and cholesterol scare that, that we've been living with for so many years. B12 is a 
I mean, you're, you're correct. B12 insufficiency and over deficiency are rampant. And I think it's incredibly underrecognized, not just it, especially in older people, but in younger people too, it's, it's incredibly underrecognized. I think the cutoff points are way too low. Um, so B12 is required for the myelin that I mentioned earlier. It's the substance that coats and protects the neurons, almost like when you're you're insulating a wire so that the wire doesn't short out. Same thing with your brain cells. Our, our brain communicates like electrochemically. They're, they're electrical signals and they have to be grounded. You need B12 to, to synthesize this myelin. And very, um, I was going to say very severe B12 deficiency, but I think any sort of B12 insufficiency can affect cognition. And not only that, I think very severe B12 deficiency is actually misdiagnosed as dementia. And it's because these the B12 levels are either not being tested properly, or they're not even being looked for at all. You know, people people think that this needs to be so complicated. So they start with all these super advanced testing and all this complex stuff, instead of looking at the most basic, fundamental things. Is this person deficient in critical nutrients for brain health? You know, and, and B12, like I said, it was kind of a, a passenger along with the cholesterol scare. B12 is highest in some of the foods that we've been warned against, like egg yolks, um, liver, shellfish, red meat, all of this food that's high in cholesterol and or saturated fat, B12 was kind of a an unwitting bystander, so to speak. Like it it we we stopped eating B12, you know, when we stopped eating cholesterol. Yeah, and it's amazing because that uh, population, you know, sort of grandparents' generation, that they were naturally eating all these foods. Had we not given them this advice, I mean, they would have just kept on eating the butter and the egg yolks and everything else. And, of course, you see now the classic sort of tea and toast diet as people get older. You know, the consumptions of things that, you know, like animal proteins and meats goes down and the appetite goes down and more breads and whatnot. So it's uh, it's definitely a, a, a tricky one to, to solve. It's It's so hard, especially for the very elderly, because... You know, I, I do try to be realistic. If you take an 88-year-old that has dentures, that's weak, they are not going to grill themselves a steak for dinner. They're going to eat a slice of bread or a blueberry muffin, something that's soft, something that they don't have to stand for 10 minutes and babysit on the stove. Um, so, you know, we we hope that these people have caregivers or loved ones looking after them because it's it's not easy for older people to really cook and eat this kind of food. It can be done, but it's um, it's not going to be their first choice. Very well said. And if we shift gears here now to genetic risk factors, you know, there's specific alleles of the APOE gene that are associated with higher risk of Alzheimer's. Can you walk us through who might be at risk? Yeah, this is this is one of my favorite topics because they call that APOE4 the Alzheimer's gene, except that's very misleading because it it's it terrifies people who find out that they have a C4 gene. They, they think it's a death sentence. Oh, I'm going to get Alzheimer's, you know. And it is true that having this gene very significantly increases your risk for Alzheimer's. But the majority of people who have Alzheimer's do not have the E4 gene. And not everyone who does have the E4 gene is going to develop Alzheimer's. So it's a risk factor, but it doesn't actually cause the condition. Um, what fascinates me about the E4 is that it it's believed that that gene is one of the older genes in the human population, and it was forged before 
the advent of grain agriculture. So cultures around the world that had a history of grain agriculture have a lower incidence of this gene. So meaning that the people that have this gene are more suited toward a hunter-gatherer type diet. Um, it doesn't mean it would be a ketogenic diet or a very low-carb diet, but they wouldn't have been getting a lot of carbohydrate from grain. They might have been eating, you know, tubers and fruit and things like beets, um, but they would have had probably a lower carbohydrate intake. Um, and, and with that lower carbohydrate intake, they may have had lower insulin levels and, and a lower need for insulin. And these E4s actually produce less of the insulin degrading enzyme that I talked about before. So I think that's why maybe these populations have much more significant buildup of those amyloid plaques because they, they have less of an ability to clear away the amyloid. Um, but that's, I think that's really where the crux is because it's not that the E4 gene is dangerous in and of itself. It's a very bad mismatch to the modern diet where we're eating, you know, a constant influx of refined carbohydrate, you know, three, four times a day, some people more, more often than that. Um, so I think, I think E4 is definitely not a, uh, it's not a death sentence. I don't think it's it's anything to worry about, but you do have to be a lot more careful then about what you eat and how you live. So you don't you don't trigger your increased susceptibility to this condition. So the old saying in terms of genes load the gun and things like diet, exercise, lifestyle, they pull the trigger is still still totally applicable for these folks that have that APOE variant. Exactly. And and for the people that don't have it, because, you know, like I said, most people with Alzheimer's don't have E4. So clearly, you know, nobody is in the clear if if they don't have this gene, like you're not you're not protected from Alzheimer's. Absolutely. And of course, when I think of you know, metabolic dysfunctions, I think mitochondria right off the bat, we had Dr. Martin Gavala, Dr. Brian Schoenfeld on uh, the show talking all about the benefits of things like HIT and exercise. Um, you know, what's going on in processes like glycation and oxidation that impact the cell membranes of the mitochondria and therefore, you know, trickle down to impacting the brain? Um, it's, it's kind of, it goes back to what I said about structure and function. If, if the structure of, of these neurons are, is not correct, then they're not going to function properly. And one of the things that glycation does is glycation, if, if it sounds like glucose to people out there, you're right. Because glycation is, it's when cells or, or any proteins and structures in the body get gunked up with sugar, you know, to use the scientific term. Um, when your blood sugar is constantly high, that, that sugar has to go somewhere. It can't stay in the bloodstream forever. So it sort of latches on to wherever it can. And sometimes it latches on to parts and pieces of these cells. And if these cells become all sticky and, and mucked up with sugar, they can't work properly. So that's, that's the glycation. And then the, the oxidation is, we, we said before that our cells and the cell membranes are, are largely built out of fat. And fats are susceptible to oxidation, which is, you know, kind of a fancy word for damage. It's, if, if people have ever had a container of nuts sit around too long and it turns rancid, that's oxidation. That's your sign that, that those fats have become damaged. It smells really bad. It tastes really bad. You, you know it's spoiled. Well, that happens to the fats that are in our cell membranes too. Um, and again, when that happens, when those fats are oxidized, that cell is not going to work properly. So um, there's, 
all just all kinds of damage and and those things you know glycation and oxidation are normal processes they're they're going to happen to everybody they're going to happen in healthy people but when they become uncontrolled when they become rampant and they overwhelm the body's ability to sort of deal with it in a natural manner that's when it's a problem and so antioxidants like things like glutathione superoxide dismutase those are key for antioxidant defense and i know um, some clients of mine as people listening in might be thinking, well, I'll just, you know, load up on an antioxidant supplement and then I should be protected. Is that the best strategy or what would address really the root cause? Oh yeah. I'm so glad you said that because there's, um, I think there's a lot of misconception about antioxidants and I don't think it's true that if you just ingest antioxidants that they're taken into the body without any change. You know, that if you take vitamin C or vitamin E or, you know, superoxide dismutase in pill form, that it reaches the the target destination and does what it's supposed to do. I think it's more important to ingest nutrients that help our body form our own internal or endogenous antioxidants, things like superoxide dismutase and glutathione and catalase. And those come from you know, they require sulfur, they require different amino acids. Um, I think catalase needs iron. So we need foundational vitamins and minerals to make these enzymes. And I don't think that loading up on the dietary antioxidants is going to achieve that. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to make people afraid of like taking a vitamin C pill. You know, if, if you get a cold or something, people still like to do that. But um, I think it's far better to try and induce less damage that has to be, you know, undone than to try to take a giant massive dose of antioxidants to undo it. Um, and, and some amount of quote unquote damage is totally normal. You know, it's just the natural byproduct of human metabolism, of, of breathing, of metabolizing food. We generate waste products. We generate some of these free radicals that do this cellular damage. That's normal. But, we we sort of force our bodies to deal with a lot more of that damage when blood sugar is constantly high and insulin is constantly high and we eat some of these damaged fats like these vegetable oils that are kind of oxidized and rancid before you even eat them absolutely and if someone's sort of ready to get on board and you know adopt a ketogenic diet to improve cognitive function fight off things like um, alzheimer's you know should they be testing for ketones in the short term in terms of urine, blood, or breath, or what's a good place to, uh, to dip their toe in and get started? Oh, um, I just wrote a huge blog post on some of the myths and misconceptions about measuring ketones. So perfect. We'll link to that. <laughs> if, <laughs> yeah, I, it's, it's a huge topic because I think there's a lot of misinformation about this and people get very worked up over their ketone levels when they don't even really understand how to interpret the numbers that they see. So I think when somebody is first transitioning to a ketogenic diet, I think the urine testing can be helpful because more than anything, it's, it's motivation. If you, if you, if, if, if people listening out there are not familiar with this, if you're on a ketogenic diet, you can get these reagent strips from the drugstore and you, you urinate on the strip and it'll change color to show you your level of ketones. And that's a really good encouragement and motivator for people that are brand new to this. If they see the color change, that's confirmation for them that they've made the switch over from a more carbohydrate-based metabolism to a fat-based metabolism. So it sort of tells them they're on the right track. 
Um, I don't think they need to measure forever. I think it's something they can do every now and then. The blood ketone testing is actually very expensive. Um, I know there's people who test a couple of times a day. They they must make a lot more than I do because I, I couldn't afford to test like like they do. But that's also, I think, for someone that is in the throes of dementia, it might be good to test because you want to see that this person is actually generating ketones and then see if improvements in their cognition are are linked to their ketone level. Maybe when their ketones are, are a little bit on the high side, then this person is noticeably, you know, their their behavior is, is better, their, their memory is better. Um, most people don't need to measure, but I think measuring can be helpful to, again, like tell you that you're on the right track. It can give you some feedback about how different foods affect you, but blood ketones are very fickle. They they can be up or down for any number of reasons. And it, it doesn't always mean that you're doing something wrong. So I just recommend that, you know, if people are going to measure, they should really consult with somebody that can help them figure out why they see low or high numbers at certain times. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think it's a really nice way in the short term to get people motivated. People can see the changes that are going on, but it does get more and more complicated as people get through, especially even on the athletic and sports side of things. So um, great insights there. Now, what about things like supplements, MCT supplements for, for folks with uh, dementia, Alzheimer's? Are they going to see benefit right off the bat? Can someone just take MCTs to boost ketone levels and, and are getting all the benefits? There have been um, a lot of reports where, you know, anecdotal reports and a couple of clinical trials of using MCT oil where people do have noticeably improved cognitive function with with no other change to their diet or lifestyle than just taking MCT oil and in some cases coconut oil, which is high in the medium chain triglycerides. And the reason this happens is because these MCTs are very easily converted into ketones to the point where even if somebody is still eating a high carb diet and they're sedentary and they're not sleeping, they will have elevated ketones just from the MCTs. So I think that is a great thing to do for someone who's either very elderly or of any age that is in a very advanced disease state. If they're very, you know, if the dementia is severe, for somebody younger who's maybe in the early stages of this, I think the MCT oil is good to use and it can help, but they still have plenty of time and plenty of ability to implement some of the other changes because the MCT oil is kind of a short-term fix. It's, it's going to provide the body with the ketones in the short term, but as soon as those are metabolized, they're gone. You know, now compare that and, and, and just having those ketones is not going to do anything to potentially reverse the problems that are there that are causing this condition in the first place. Whereas if somebody really makes a radical change to their diet and lifestyle, I think that can go some way to actually reversing some of the disease pathology. And then that person too, if you're on a very low carb diet, you're going to be generating ketones 24-7, even at, even at just a very low level. So I think I think it's it's best to do both do the do a low carb diet and take MCT or coconut oil. But if you're dealing with someone who is you know 79 years old has dementia is not going to give up their morning orange juice and toast in favor of you know eggs cooked in coconut oil, then let them eat what they want and just try to get them to take some MCT oil. Absolutely, and 
you, know, you mentioned sort of on the lifestyle front there, and I know there's a connection between poor sleep or fragmented sleep and Alzheimer's diseases. Can you comment on that? Yeah, there, there's a couple of reasons. I think one of the reasons is that poor sleep or, or broken sleep um, reduces insulin sensitivity. It really, it's amazing how much of this Alzheimer's comes down to insulin because so many of the interventions that have either been shown to be helpful or or there's, you know, reasonable, plausible mechanisms by which they might be helpful, they all improve insulin sensitivity. And a low-carb diet, sleep, exercise. So getting good quality sleep, I think, does help us uh, metabolize and use carbohydrates better. It probably helps us metabolize everything better. But sleep also is really important for clearing away these amyloid proteins. You know, we said earlier that these amyloid proteins build up in the brain when they're not cleared away properly. Well, high insulin makes it harder to clear them away, but poor sleep makes it difficult too because they, they've found that these proteins are more easily cleared away when we sleep than when we're awake. So it's almost like when you're sleeping and your body doesn't have to devote, I mean, I'm kind of simplifying it here, but when your body doesn't have to devote a lot of energy and resources toward, you know, keeping you up and, and helping you do your work or, or go for a run or something, it can then divert resources to cleaning house, so to speak, like clearing out old debris, getting rid of old worn out cellular parts, just kind of like that's when the, the, the brain and the body does its maintenance is overnight while you sleep. And so if you're only sleeping five or six hours a night, maybe you're supposed to be sleeping seven or eight, you have less time for your body to do that. Yeah, great suggestions in terms of dietary, of course, lifestyle with sleep. You mentioned exercise, and we know that exercise increases uh, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, BDNF. Is that What do we see in Alzheimer's patients with those levels? I think that Alzheimer's patients do have lower levels of BDNF, and exercise does increase it. And I think exercise is huge for insulin sensitivity, of course. Um, but it's it's interesting because... Exercise is, I think, a double-edged sword because people think that it's really good for you, which it is, but it's there there comes a point of diminishing returns. You know, there's a reason, like like if people out listening are, are familiar with Mark Sisson, he was a professional triathlete and he was sick all the time. He had respiratory infections all the time. He was kind of under the weather all the time. And it's because his body didn't have enough time for adequate repair. So if you're going to work out really hard, you need to rest hard too. And that's um, something that I feel like younger people kind of don't respect. They just think they can go hard all the time every day and that they need to go hard. They don't recognize the body's need for repair and recovery. But I will say that that's kind of a different issue. If you're talking about someone who's elderly, you know, some of these people can't exercise. It's not safe for them or they're not even physically able to exercise. And if that's the case... I think that the low-carb or ketogenic diet is the most important, most powerful thing to do for this condition. The exercise, better sleep, all that other stuff is is a bonus. It's going to help, but it's not the number one most important thing. So to the extent that somebody older can exercise and can get moving, they should. But I don't think that somebody should feel like, well, you know, if my grandpa or my, my wife is, you know, is, is housebound, they can't exercise. That's not, um, that shouldn't be a deal breaker with trying to, to help them with this. 
Absolutely. And you know, so much great advice here, Amy. I really want to you know, thank you and, and respect your time here a little bit. Um, so I'll shift into our last question of the day, a question I ask all my guests, and that is, how do you start your day? Is it coffee, exercise, writing? What's your morning routine like? Oh, it's it's coffee. And I, I, I almost want to say it's like a gallon of coffee. Um, I, I probably drink too much of it. I, I am definitely a coffee girl. Um, I... I do probably drink too much of it, but yeah, I don't, I don't have one of those, you know, killer morning routines where I meditate and then I run miles and, um, I'm trying to get a little bit better about my mornings. I, I quit a government job a couple of years ago do, doing unrelated work to nutrition, to, to do my nutrition full time. And, and ever since then I have not been able to really get on a good kind of schedule, but I would like to. And for you in the morning with that coffee, are you a black coffee drinker? Is it a bit of cream or how, how do you like? I am. That? I am cream and, and stevia. So um, I'm. Nice. I'm not a dietary saint. I'm not a purist. Um, I. I do drink it. I do drink it with cream and sweetener. Fantastic. Well, listen. Really appreciate you taking the time out today. I could actually go on asking you questions all afternoon, but uh, you know, where can people keep up with your work and stay connected with you on social media? Um, my blog, my website is to it nutrition. It's T U I T nutrition.com. And I have, uh, my book is called the Alzheimer's antidote and that's available on Amazon. Um, it may be available in some brick and mortar stores, but I'm not sure. I know it's on Amazon and uh, I'm very active on Twitter so people can follow me there. The handle is uh to it nutrition. Awesome. Well, we'll definitely include all those links in a brief podcast summary in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. Thanks, Amy, for making the time today. And thanks again for everyone else tuning in. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Dr. Bubs. You can use the hashtag DrBubsVP. And of course, if you enjoy the show, please take a couple minutes, head over to iTunes, subscribe, and give us your rating of the show. Thanks again, and we'll see everyone next week. The Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcasts.